0: Good morning. If you have your uh, Bible with you, uh, please turn to Daniel chapter 6. We'll be reading the entire chapter this morning. It is a long uh, chapter, so if you feel the need to sit down, please do so at any time. If you do not have your Bible with you, the scripture will be on the screen behind me. Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them. Three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all, the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius, sign the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, O king, Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, This thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed. But makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that is the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king, the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den... The lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all, to all the peoples and nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. If I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues his He works, signs, and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated.
1: As you've seen, we're going to be in a long chapter this morning. Um, we're going to be in Daniel 6, which I think could be In the running for the most famous of all the stories in the Bible, Daniel in the lion's den. And to give you just a little bit of context, uh, if you didn't grow up reading the story, Daniel is an Israelite, about the age of 15. The Babylonians came in. They took him and other captives back out of Israel into Babylon. Daniel has been there about 65 years by the time that we get to chapter 6. He's probably about 80 years old. He has risen up multiple times in the hierarchy of the government, first under Nebuchadnezzar, uh, then Belshazzar, then the Persians came in and conquered the Babylonians. And now he is under the reign of Darius, or as VeggieTales has probably permanently changed his name in our culture to Darius. So, okay, we really don't know how any of these names were pronounced, so it doesn't matter. Just say it with confidence. You know, I I really appreciated Jen's story this morning. Uh, Jen knows what it's like to live as a foreigner. I know a little bit of what it's like to live as a foreigner. Some of you know what it's like to live as a foreigner in a foreign land. Uh, I lived five years in Italy. And I I noticed something in, in Western Europe. When you go to all the major train stations in Western Europe, there is one common denominator. Any ideas what that is? McDonald's. In every major train station, you find a McDonald's. And it's interesting to me because, you know, in these, in, these, in these train stations, you have some of the best cuisine in the world, in France, in Italy, in Germany. Some of my favorite food is in Germany. People don't think of as having great food, but they have great food. Yet in all these places, there's a thriving McDonald's. Why? Because there are so many Americans traveling in Western Europe And we want a piece of home. And when I was a single guy living in Pisa, Italy, we had a McDonald's in our train station. But if you went over to the Florence McDonald's, they served breakfast. And to me, that was a little more a piece of home than than lunch McDonald's. So we would wake up really early on a Saturday, which for me back then was like 8 or 8.30. And we would get on a train and take the $5 train over to Florence so that we could get McDonald's breakfast so that I could have a sausage McMuffin with egg and get a little taste of home. And inevitably, every time I bit into that sausage McMuffin with egg, it just, something was off. The meat was a little cold. the, The cheese tasted a little plasticky. But when I went to that sausage McMuffin, longing for satisfaction, the kind of satisfaction that would remind me of home, somehow it just reminded me a little more that I'm not home. And that sausage McMuffin wasn't gonna give me what I really longed for. And the reason I love the story of Daniel six is because we see a picture of what it looks like to live as a faithful servant of God as a foreigner in a foreign land. So I wanna look at this passage and I wanna identify five things that we should see from this passage to help us understand more about our calling as Christians living as foreigners in a foreign land, because the Apostle Paul, as he said, our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. And before we dive in, there's a C.S. Lewis quote that is actually a big part of my, uh, my conversion that I want to read. He says, if I, if I find in myself desires which n- nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. We were made for another world. And so I want to dive in and look at what it looks like to live faithfully in this life as foreigners made for another world. All right, let's go. First, if you are faithful as a foreigner, you will be distinguished. In some way, you will be distinguished. Daniel followed God, and we see in verse 3 that it shaped the way that people looked at him. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was with it, was within him. All right, so we know Daniel was wise. He, he was gifted in the area of administration. The Persian government at this time was a massive government. It spanned three continents from Greece to India. And with any mass government, you're gonna find mass administration. And where you find mass administration, you find mass corruption, <laughs> And the people at the top, especially the king, quickly learned that when Daniel was around, the corruption was less and the prosperity was more. And that's why at the end in this verse, it says Daniel protected the king from suffering loss. He knew that it was better for him when Daniel was around. So why was this? What shaped the way that Daniel thought? What, What brought about this excellent spirit within him? I think there are multiple things, but I think it all comes from something we we can see from his name. Do you know what Daniel's name means? God is my judge. God is my judge. There was a deep, profound understanding for Daniel that the king was not his judge, that the people around him weren't his judge, that there was a judge who was going to see everything he does, Because he wasn't going to give in to the corruption and the opportunity to be more prosperous in this administration, but he knew he would be judged by God who saw everything, who saw every secret that we have, who saw everything we did when we thought people weren't looking. And so we need to ask ourselves can the same be said of us? Are those who employ us thankful that we're there? Are those who are employed by us, do they, are they thankful that we are the people who are making decisions about their lives? Or if I can bring you into my world a little bit more right now, are the parents of the kids who you're coaching in Little League thankful that you're there to coach their child, even if there's an absence of any real perceivable athletic ability on your part? <laughs> are people glad because we're around Are we living with an intense knowledge that there is a judge and that judge is the God of the universe who sees everything that we do? If that's the case, we're going to look different. The decisions we make will be different. They won't make sense to everybody. And in some sense, we're going to be distinguished. But when we live this kind of life and when we're distinguished, there are also going to be those who despise us. And that's my second point if we're going to be faithful as foreigners in a foreign land, the way that Daniel was, we will be despised. So if we are really good at what we do, if we live the kind of life knowing that God judges us, our bosses are going to like us. That is until we're promoted over them. You know, you get promoted over somebody, then you begin to see who your real friends are. People are going to be jealous. And I I do want to have a caveat here, okay? Because I talk to... Christians who will come to me and say, Jim, I, I'm, I'm persecuted at work and I'm, and I'm persecuted in home and, and people just don't like me because I'm a Christian. And I can begin to sense from knowing them that it's possible that you're perse- persecuted because you're a condescending, arrogant jerk, <laughs> not because you're a Christian. Okay. So we need to set that aside for a second because we don't have any indication that that's Daniel here. Daniel is somebody who is humbly serving God, trying to do what he knows is best. And because of that, people despise him. The satraps, along with the high officials, and satraps are like governors in that time, they begin to plot against Daniel. They begin to look at every area of his life and try to find something that they can get him on, something that will disqualify him. And it doesn't mean that Daniel's perfect, but they begin to look for something to disqualify him. And the text says that no error or fault was found in him. So here we need to ask ourselves, can the same be said about us? If somebody went and rooted around in our life, if they talked to those closest to us, if they got on our phones, looked at our internet history, looked at our our chats at our bank account, would we pass that kind of a test? And again, not saying we're perfect, but would we find be able to be found just the way that Daniel was. About three years ago, the Ashley Madison thing happened, (laughs) where some internet history was revealed, uh, if you know what was going on. And a lot of men who were on a website that they shouldn't have been on were made public. Public. And and it was state by state how this played out. It was different in every state. But in my state, they went, someone arranged every name by city in alphabetical order. So you could just go, I didn't do this by the way, but a lot of people did. And you could see everybody in the town of Oxford, Mississippi. And then, you know, the surrounding towns where you know people who was on that website. And I knew three men on that website. And I was talking to a pastor and we were talking about this unique phenomenon. And I said, man, I just think this is a precursor of what's to come. I think we're going to see a day and age where everything we do on our phones is going to be made publicly available. And that pastor went white. And he said, Jim, that would not go well for me. And I appreciated his honesty, and I do think the Lord has used that conversation to bring him to a better place. But that pastor would not have passed that test. Can we? Because the world wanted Daniel to fall. They wanted him to fall, and they would have been cheering as he fell. And I think primarily for two reasons. First is plain jealousy. You have this man getting praise and promotion that you're not getting, so sure, we're gonna be naturally geared to be jealous of this person. But I think there's something deeper, and I think it has to do with the God that Daniel serves. Daniel is adamant there is only one God the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, that is the only God. And when you make a claim like that, you are saying, even if you don't say it, everyone else's God is false. Everyone else's worship is false. And when people hear that, it is going to cause them to not like us in some way. When I was in college, I got to serve on this national board and they would fly us around the United States for these board meetings. And it was, I was really thankful to be on this board. But there was this guy who was always a little distant from me. He was a very, very successful, very nice guy. And finally, at one of these meetings, uh, we got to start to talk about spiritual things. And it, and it, was, fu- it was like the, the floodgates opened. And he said, Jim, I hate Christians like you. I hate you because of your intolerance. And... I wasn't as nuanced back then as I would like, would have, should have been. And I said, really? Because of the two of us, it seems like I'm the tolerant one right now in this conversation. But what he was saying when he was waving this flag of tolerance was I'm tolerant of anything that doesn't tell me that I'm wrong. Anything that tells me I'm wrong, I am intolerant of. And I think that in large part is what's going on in Daniel in this passage. They didn't want to be told that what they believed was wrong. There's one pastor I read. He said, you know, everyone can get around the first part of John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's the second part that flies all over people. No one comes to the Father but through me. So we shouldn't be surprised if our devotion to God brings some measure of difficulty Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you on falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad. So the question we need to ask ourselves as we live as foreigners in a foreign land, are we despised? I'm not despised because we're condescending, arrogant Christians, but are we despised because we are trying to humbly walk in our faith? And if there is no no one around us that we see despising us for our faith. It may be cause to reexamine our faith. Because if we walk faithfully as foreigners in foreign land, we will be dignified, but we will dis- be despised. And then thirdly, we will be prayerful. All right, the high officials and the satraps, they gathered together, they tried to find something against Daniel. They couldn't find anything, so they decided, we're going to use his character against him. We know that he prays. Every day he prays. And we know we can use that against him. So they went to King Darius. And they tricked him into making a decree. That for 30 days. You could only worship him. For 30 days you could not worship or pray to anybody but the king. And the nature of a Persian decree was such. That once it was made you could not revoke the law. Even the king himself couldn't come back on it. And so Daniel knowing what's going on, knowing this is going to be a problem for him, what does he do? He prays. He goes back to his place, his upper room with the window open as he always did, and he prayed. And I think there are three things we can see about the way Daniel prayed if we want to continue as faithful foreigners in a foreign land. And first is that he prayed humbly. We see that he was on his knees, You know, he didn't come to God as some errand boy who we go to to get something when we need it and want it. He went to God humbly, knowing that God is in charge of all events. He's gonna have this go the way that he wants and it's going to be for Daniel's best, but Daniel doesn't understand it at this moment. So he simply gets on his knees and he prays. And the first thing he does is thank God for all of his people. And then he humbly begins to make requests for them. So he prays humbly. But second, we see that he had a habit of prayer. Verse 10 says that he gave thanks before his God as he had previously done. So praying for Daniel, it wasn't something that he just did when he was in a hard time. It's something that he had been in the habit of doing. He had been praying three times a day, facing Jerusalem, as was the, co- the, the uh, custom of Israelites in captivity And when I see this, I can't help but wonder if somebody came in and said, Jim Davis, or said to you, for 30 days, you can't get on your knees and faithfully pray to God, how much would that change our lives? And if, if the answer isn't significantly, we have something to learn from Daniel. Because he had a habit of praying. And that habit, I have to imagine, goes all the way back to his roots in Israel, probably back to his parents. Everything for Daniel had changed. His customs had changed. His dress had changed. His language has changed. But the most important parts of his faith and who he was, they had not changed. His parents had established that in him. And I, I, don't, I don't expect that somebody's going to come in when my kids turn 15 and take them from me. But I do think at 18, Lord willing, they will leave me. And I have to ask myself, am I giving them the same kinds of tools that will set them up to live also as faithful foreigners in a foreign land? Tools like prayer that obviously Daniel had gained before he became an exile in Babylon and then Persia. So he prayed humbly. He had a habit of prayer. And then thirdly, he prayed openly. You know, I think he could have gone to a different room. I think he he could have closed the window. And this one for me is really interesting because in our culture, in America, things are changing so fast that one of the things that's becoming awkward is open prayer, public prayer. And increasingly, I find it difficult to discern, is this a time we pray publicly? Is this a time we pray privately? You know, we don't want to be like the, the Pharisees who Jesus rebuked for being so public in the way that they prayed. So what do we take from this? How do we discern when we pray openly and when we pray privately? Because I know I look in my past and I can see times that I've been guilty of being public when I should have been private and private when I should have been public. So the best tool that I know to use and to give to you actually came from a guy named Kevin DeYoung. He says, if, if you feel the temptation to pray in private, go public. And if you feel the temptation to pray in public, go private. I think that's a good a good filter for us. I think that's probably what Daniel felt. I think he pr- he felt the temptation to pray in private private, but he went public. So if we're faithful, we will be praying. <laughs> we will have to pray. And then fourthly, if we're faithful foreigners in a foreign land, we will have trials. We will have trials. The high officials and the satraps, they waited. They found Daniel doing exactly what they knew he would do. They caught him. They brought him before the king. The king knew what was going on, but couldn't revoke this this injunction or this, this law, this decree. And so he was sent to the lion's den. And I think the last words of the king to Daniel were somewhat prophetic. The king says, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. I was talking uh, about the story with my children uh, a little bit back at the dinner table. And one of my kids said, why did he just have lions hanging around? That's kind of (laughs) weird. And I thought, that's a really good question. Why did he have lions? And it, it, it wasn't unlike like a British aristocracy where they would keep foxes around for sport hunting in the same way Persian kings and royalty would keep lions around for hunting. It just happened that they also doubled nicely for a James Bond style execution. And I know you know that there are many out there who say things like, if you have enough faith, these kind of trials won't come your way. When my wife was going through chemotherapy for cancer about 10 years ago, I had another guy I was sitting down with who told me he felt like the reason she was going through cancer was because we lacked a certain measure of faith. And he was very lucky there was a table between us at that moment (laughs) because I've never wanted to hit somebody more. We can't draw a conclusion like this from the Bible because Daniel went to the lion's den, Stephen was stoned to death, Peter was crucified upside down and Paul was shipwrecked, stoned, beaten, arrested and beheaded. Paul says to us in 2 Timothy 3, 2 that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I know some of you have studied Greek out there and you know that in ancient Greek, you know what this word all means? All, all. Yeah. I just have to tell people, you know, I've had 24 hours of ancient languages at RTS and my main takeaway is that the English Bible is awesome. There that is. All right. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. What is Jesus saying? If our life is based on this foundation, this foundation is his teachings. The rains are still going to come, the wind is still going to beat against the house, the floods are still going to come, but our faith will be sustained no matter what happens to our bodies. That's what Jesus is saying. We will have trials. And I know there's probably at least one person out here thinking, yeah, Jim, but Daniel didn't get eaten by the lions, which is a good point. But there's a problem with that statement. We're not Daniel. All right, up until now, all I've been doing is drawing wisdom and moral lessons from the Old Testament, which is a good and wise thing to do. But if we go from that to inserting ourselves as the hero of every Bible story, we're gonna miss the point of the Bible. We're gonna miss the point of the Old Testament because the, questions, the question of the Old Testament isn't where am I? The question of the Old Testament is where is Jesus? The Old Testament exists to point us to Jesus. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. The Old Testament points to Jesus. Uh, three days after Jesus' death, two of the disciples were walking to Emmaus. They were discouraged. They were downtrodden because the man they thought was going to be their savior was dead. And the resurrected Jesus began to join them in this walk and, and they didn't understand exactly who Jesus was right away. And listen to what Jesus said to them. "'O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken.'" Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And here it is. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He went through the whole Old Testament and said, here I am, here I am, here I am, and here I am. And people have asked, well, why wasn't that recorded? (laughs) And the answer I think is that it was in the whole rest of the New Testament. Because what Jesus is saying is that every Old Testament story in in some way is pointing to him. And when we understand that and we're asking the right question in these stories, where is Jesus? Then the answer becomes really clear because in Daniel, we have a righteous man in whom we could find no fault, but he was persecuted, arrested, cast into a tomb and covered over with a rock. And when everybody went back against all odds, that man was still alive. This is a story about Jesus. Jesus. I said in the beginning, I like this story because it's, it shows us a picture of what it looks like to, be a f- to live faithfully in the service of God as a foreigner. And no one has ever done that better than Jesus Christ. And this story is pointing to him. Jesus, the ultimate foreigner who left all the comforts of his honor and glory and praise to enter into this life, to walk the trials that we experience to live the life that we never could, to go to the cross, to take our punishment and give us everything that he merited in this life. Jesus is the ultimate foreigner in foreign land. And he was not an an exception to the trials that his faith brought him. So why in the world would we begin to think that we are? But in the gospel, Jesus, he hasn't removed trials from this life. He sabotaged them. So now when these trials come into play, when they come into our life, they're no longer punitive in nature. They no longer come in to reaffirm our condemnation. They're purifying. They come in to make us more into his image. He's saying the trials are still gonna come, but I'm gonna sustain your faith and these trials will make you more and more like me. That's what trials are doing. And the purpose of the story is to point us to him. And some people continuing to try to argue, th- argue this point have gone to Hebrews to argue that our faith should heal us or prevent us from experiencing these kinds of trials on earth. So let's look at their argument. Hebrews, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. And here it is. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced judgment, judge, justice, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions through faith. Do they have an argument? Yes. If you don't read any further. Because two verses later, same context, we read, Some were tortured, fusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Their faith didn't keep them from trials. Their faith brought them home. That's what our faith is designed to do. Our hope in Jesus isn't ultimately a hope in this life. Our hope in Jesus is that we get to go home. And in the words of John MacArthur, who does have a tendency for the controversial, but I think his point is well taken on this if our best life is now, then we're going to hell. Our hope is not in this life. Our hope is that we get to go home because Jesus, who this story is pointing to, the better Daniel, has conquered our greatest enemy, death. If we're faithful, we will be distinguished. We will be despised. We will be prayerful. We will have trials. But lastly, we will be brought home. And to see this, we have to look at the part of the story that is very uncomfortable to read. This part of the story that Alistair Begg calls the dark side of Daniel. So let's read it. "'The king commanded, "'and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel "'were brought and cast into the den of lions. "'They, their children, and their wives, "'and before they reached the bottom of the den, "'the lions overpowered them "'and broke all their bones into pieces.'" Now, to be fair, if this had happened in Israel, the wives and the children would not be held accountable for the sins of their parents and husbands. But we're not in Israel. We're in Persia. We see a picture of what will happen to all those, or what did happen to all those who opposed Daniel. And we're getting a foreshadow of what will happen to all those who oppose the better Daniel because one day Jesus will come back. And when he comes back, there are going to be two types of people. There's going to be one type of person who has opposed the better Daniel, who has opposed Jesus and who has said, at the end of time, I'm going to be judged on my merits. I will stand in front of God and I will argue with my own life. And on that day, Jesus's return will be the scariest and the worst event they could ever imagine. But for a second group of people, for people who have believed in Jesus because we know that we could never stand in front of a holy and perfect and righteous God on our own merit. And so we've said, I want to be judged by Jesus's merits, the merits of his life. For that group of people, there's no judgment. There's simply homecoming. And on that day, it will be the best event in human history that we could ever imagine. And so our qu- the question we need to ask ourselves is what is our relationship with the truer Daniel? What is our relationship with Jesus Christ? And on that day when he returns, is it going to be a day of terror or is it going to be a day of homecoming? Because only in Jesus Christ can we go home to the land that we truly long for and were created to live in. Do we know that this is, is not our home. Do we really feel it? You know, in, in Grace Bible Church, I was saying in, in the, the first hour, we are, we have been traditionally a younger church. For many years, the average age at Grace was about 13 and a half, as best we could tell. And by God's grace, we've been getting older. I think we've probably hit our 20s. We see more gray hair in the audience, and I'm really thankful for that. But by and large, I don't think the people at Grace Bible Church in Oxford that we feel like foreigners because we're young enough, we are healthy enough. By and large, we're successful enough to think that this world can satisfy us. And this year, Angela and I, who would be guilty of the same thing, we lost a really good friend to cancer. Her name was Shasta Shasta she was about our age and after two days after she died one of our mutual friends got a new phone and I don't I didn't know this was a normal thing but when you get a new phone and you put in your new sim card and you download whatever data comes in from the cloud it's not unusual to get an old text message as if it's a new text message so two days after his death he got a text from Shasta saying two words I'm home And for me, it helped to just think and meditate. What, what is it like? What is it like to be in the home that we're designed for, the home that Jesus would die so that we could go back to? And I know I've got a long way to go, but thinking about it was helpful. It reminded me a little more, this is not the world I was made for. And it, in some small way, reoriented my life. Some things that were on the periphery were able to come back into focus and some things that were very much in focus were able to go to the periphery where they needed to stay. Do we know this is not our home? Do we know how we're going to get home? Do we long for that day? And are we reorienting the priorities of our life that reflect that hope? Because we know that everything we seek satisfaction in in this life is ultimately not going to give us that much more than a, than a cold sausage McMuffin with egg in the Florence train station. So I want to pray for me, for you, that this would be true of us. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful that you have created a home for us. And, and I need to be reminded often that, that I deserve to not be there. I deserve to experience pain and suffering. But in your grace, you have given us Jesus Christ who is conforming us, using the trials of our life to conform us into his image in a long process, process that feels long, but in the glimpse of the, Of eternity. It's it's a flicker of an eye. And God, I pray that this would be more real in our hearts, that we would know the home to which we were called, the Savior who bought us our ticket there, and that we would just be reoriented. And the things of this world that we love so we wouldn't love as much, and the things that we can easily forget about you we would see more clearly. We know that this is only a grace of your Holy Spirit, and I pray that you would do that work in our hearts. That we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, a mind to understand, and most of all, a will to obey. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.